we are continuing our series on worship. And we're on week three of Created for Worship. And what we've been looking at every week is what, what does God have to say to us regarding why we do what we do? We do a lot of things on Sunday morning, and if you're new to the church, you might think a lot of these things are strange. We sit up, we sit down, we say creeds, we shake hands, we sing loud, we shout things out at certain times during the service, we, we, you know, we're going to come and we're going to read what some might say is an antiquated book, and we do all of these things, and then we're going to come forward, and we're going to dip this wafer in the cup, and you might say, why do we do what we do? And you might even sit there and go, is it even worth it? Is it necessary? And my prayer and my hope that through this worship series is that we walk away, whether you've been in the church for 20 years or you've been in it for just a few weeks, that you would walk away from this experience and you would walk away from this sermon series, that you would see what happens on Sunday morning is one of the most important things that happens in your life. And that a culture of worship is so developed here at Coral Ridge that you long for Sunday mornings. You cannot imagine going another week without coming together with the people of God to worship God on Sunday morning at Coral Ridge. That God develops such a culture of worship that we long to be with the people of God, worshiping God himself. So our passage this morning is we're going to look at Ephesians chapter 5. Just a few verses, verses 18 through 21. Ephesians 5, verse 18 through 21. Paul writes, And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord stands forever. Amen. We're going to look at music this morning and singing. Some of us don't even realize how integral music and singing is to our life. Uh, Imagine going to a wedding or a funeral without music. Imagine watching the fireworks on the 4th of July without some soundtrack behind it guiding and guiding the experience. We sing at dinners and weddings and funerals. We hear music at birthday parties and even at athletic contests. We hear music and we are driven to sing. Imagine the world without music. Imagine the funeral of a military serviceman without the playing of taps. Imagine a funeral for a fallen police officer or firefighter without the sound of bagpipes. Music is more integral than we even realize. And when it comes to music and the singing of the people of God on Sunday morning, we see in the Bible 500 references to singing. 400 references to singing in the Bible. 100 direct commands to sing in the Bible. 100 times God commands his people to sing in the word of God. Singing matters to God, and the people of God have always been a singing people. In fact, in the book of Hebrews, it shows Jesus leading the people of God, leading in the midst of the congregation. In Hebrews chapter 8, it says that Jesus is the worship leader. 
You realize that? That Jesus ultimately is leading our worship, leading us to the throne of grace every single Sunday as the great worship leader. He's leading our worship. So singing in worship, if it's going to consume about half of our worship service, we probably should pay a little attention to it and understand why do we do what we do in this series on worship? Why is the idea of singing so important? And there's an entire section in the Bible called the what? Called the Psalms. The Psalms are songs. So God put an entire songbook right in the middle of the Bible. It's probably important. And some might say, I don't sing because I don't have a voice. But if it's true what we've been talking about, that worship is the capturing of our heart and our affections, that I want to propose to you that when a heart is truly captured by the greatness of God, that your heart can't refrain from singing, even if it tried. So let's look at Ephesians chapter 5 this morning. Ephesians chapter 5, and it tells us four things before we take communion this morning. Four things that Ephesians 5 tells us about the singing of the people of God in worship. The first thing it tells us is that singing is diverse. When Paul commands the people of God to sing, singing is diverse. What does he say in verse 19? Sing with psalms and with hymns and with spiritual songs that the songbook of the people of God should never seem so familiar and, and, and seem like it all just runs together. There's a complexity to the songbook of the people of God. There's psalms and there's hymns and there's spiritual songs. I think that tells us two things. One, it tells us of the timeless nature of God. That the same God that worked in people's lives 300 years ago to write beautiful music is the same God that continues to work in the hearts and lives of men and women who are writing beautiful music today. The first song, for instance, that we sung this morning, The Lion and the Lamb, was written just last year. But we're going to end this service with Jesus Paid It All, which was written in 1895. And that's beautiful because it shows that God is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. So may our worship services never be marked by songs that were just written 300 years ago, and may they never be marked by songs that were just written last year. It shows that God is never changing, that he is the same God yesterday, today, and tomorrow. So our singing is diverse. It also, the, our singing is diverse. The reason for that also shows not only the timeless nature of God, but it shows us the complexity of his nature. There's times in our worship service that we sing songs that speak of his transcendence and his majesty and his magnificence. And then there's times in our worship service where we sing songs that reflect his imminence and his nearness and his intimacy in our lives. And we need both types of songs that reflect our eyes heavenwards and are reminded of how big and great he is. And then there's times I need to know that he's by my side and he's, he's the shepherd that guides me and guides his flock. So there's a complexity to God that can only be reflected in the diversity of the songbook of the people of God. So our singing has to be diverse, expressing both the timeless nature of God, old and new, and also expressing the complexity of the nature and the attributes and the character of God. This command to sing in Ephesians 5 also tells us 
that singing is the overflow of the heart. At the end of verse 19, what does it say? Make a melody in your heart. You might say, Rob, I came for this. I came for a a sermon on singing. I mean, I thought I was going to get something a little more practical, something that I can use in my life, you know, Monday through Friday, like singing is what you just do here, right? No. What Paul's trying to say is singing is more than just these, this poetic uh, words that come out of your mouth, that singing ultimately is a reflection of what is in your heart. Actually, singing is the most relevant thing that we can talk about because Paul takes it to another level. Singing's not just the notes that come out of your mouth, the melody that comes out of your mouth or is made by your vocal cords. He says there's a melody going on in your heart. And from week one in this series, we have talked about worship is ultimately the reflection of what is captured by our heart. What is captured by our heart will come out in song. And it is the melody of our hearts which reflect and communicate and overflow what is going on in our hearts. See, the heart for the people in the Bible was not what we think of it today. They did not have the science to think of the heart as this organ that is supplying blood to the rest of the body. When they mentioned the word heart in the Bible, they were talking about the seed of affections, They were talking about the thing that drives you internally, the thing that moves you, that moves your soul, that moves your heart, the place of affections, the thing that has, that's why we use language like what has captured your heart. And when Paul says making melody with the Lord with your heart, he is saying that a heart that is captured and captivated, the affections of a person that is so captured by the magnificence and the love and the holiness and the sovereignty and the justice and the beauty of God, it is as if your heart will begin to sing. Not only will words come out of your mouth, but your heart is making melody. Jonathan Edwards, the great preacher, said, to go to heaven to fully enjoy God is infinitely better than the most pleasant accommodations here on earth, better than fathers and mothers and husbands and wives and children or the company of any or all earthly friends. These are all but shadows, but the enjoyment of God is the substance. These are but scattered beams, but God is the sun. These are but streams, but God is the fountain. These are but drops, but God is the ocean. A heart captured by the magnificence of God cannot help by making melody. We don't go to the Grand Canyon and look over and go, that's a pretty big hole. We go to the Grand Canyon and what do we do? Our breath is taken away. We're captured by something greater than ourselves. We're captured by something more magnificent and more beautiful than anything our eyes have laid its eyes on. And that's what happens when the people of God are truly captivated by the beauty and the magnificence of God. We're left breathless, without words to say, only our heart-making melody. So singing is the overflow of the heart, making melody in our heart. But singing also includes each other. Singing is diverse. Singing is the overflow of our heart. But Paul also tells us in verse 21 that singing involves one another. It says, submitting to one another out of reference to Christ. The word submitting here means an utter dependence. 
And what Paul is saying is that when the people of God worship together, particularly when the people of God sing together, it is done out of submission and dependence to one another. What that means is that, get this, and this is going to rock your world, but worship is not about you. The songs we sing are not about you. That the worship of the people of God, particularly the songs that are sung, are done out of reference, uh, out of deference and submission and dependence to one another. That we're actually singing to one another. Think about some of the songs in in our songbook that we sing together. We sing songs not directly to God, but we sing songs to one another. Think of the song, Crown Him With Many Crowns. All hail the power of Jesus' name. Oh, worship the King. It's like a team rallying together on Sunday morning saying, we're going to do this together. We're going to go and we're going to crown him with many crowns. We're going to go in there and we're going to hail the power of Jesus' name. We're going to go in there together and we are going to worship the King together. We sing together, but we sing to one another. That's why we can't do this alone. That's why I always say we can't worship on a boat on Sunday morning and we can't worship on a beach. We can't worship by ourselves like we worship here. I need to hear your voice and you need to hear my voice. And there's something beautiful that happens. There is something powerful that happens when the people of God, rich and old, young, uh, rich and poor, young and old, of all different stories and testimonies from their life come together from different cultures and different places around this globe, come together and in one voice sing. We are singing to one another, encouraging one another as we bring our praises and our songs to God. It's done out of submission to one another. And you can't do that alone. See, when you miss a Sunday, you are depriving somebody of a worship experience. Think about that. If it is truly worship is submission to one another, when you miss a Sunday morning, you are depriving the person to your left or to your right of a full worship experience. Paul is saying it's done out of submission and deference and dependence upon one another. I need to hear how you sing to God, and you need to hear how I sing to God. The people of God with one voice, blended voices, singing praises to God together. We sing praises together and remind each other of the greatness of God, of the beauty of God. We're depending upon one another for worship. So not only is our singing diverse, not only is our singing an overflow of the heart, and not only is our singing inclusive of one another, that we need to think about the person to our right and to our left and in front of us and behind us when we worship, that it's not about you, but it's about us when we worship before our God. But lastly, Paul tells us that singing is powerful that it is packed with power. If we go back to the first verse that we read, what does it tell us? Instead of being filled with wine, instead of being filled to satisfy your heart with the things of this world, Paul says, be filled with the Spirit. And when you are filled with the Spirit, what happens? You break forth in song so that the singing of the people of God, when we worship God on Sunday morning, we are done, we do so 
filled with the power of the Holy Spirit. That means our songs are powerful. That means our worship is powerful because it is done through the power of the Holy Spirit. And just as a side note, this passage tells us that every single person in the Trinity is involved in worship. The Holy Spirit, the third person in the Trinity, fuels our worship and gives us the power for worship. It says in verse 20 that we give thanks to everything, to God the Father. That means that our worship needs to be God-centered and God-focused, that our sermons and our songs and our prayers focus on God. We do it to exalt God. And then lastly, the second person of the Trinity, we do it in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, realizing that he is our worship leader. He is our intercessor, our mediator. He brings us before the throne of God, our Father. So Father, Son, and Holy Spirit all playing a role in our worship, bringing the people of God. But the Spirit of, the, of God, is the, it's the Spirit of God, the third person of the Trinity, that fuels our worship. It gives us power to sing and to worship. And I think sometimes we underestimate what is happening in worship and when the people of God are praising God with their voice and through song. They said... After the Second World War, the concentration camps in Auschwitz, they said the most powerful testimony coming out of those death camps were when the people of God were being marched to their execution, they went singing. It was the singing of the people of God on their worst day, in their greatest trial, that brought the most power and peace to the people that remain behind. See, in the, wor- in the worst of circumstances... We sing. In the greatest trials of our life, we are called to sing. Why? Because there's power in our worship. There's power in our singing. I was with a man in the hospital a couple weeks ago, and I started to read scripture to him, and he, he, he put his hand out, and he, he said, stop. He said, just sing. He just wanted me to sing to him. Here's a man facing death, and he just wanted to hear the songs of his faith. How many times have you been struggling and with a friend or in a group, the last thing you need is a sermon preached to you. (laughs) But oftentimes when we're struggling in our worst seasons of life, maybe after a prayer, how appropriate has it been to just sit there and sing together? It is well with my soul. Great is thy faithfulness. In those times of trial and tribulation and struggle, we need to remember the songs of our faith. Heard one time from a pastor by the name of Ray Cortez, who every Sunday, when he leaves his office to go out into the sanctuary, he is faced with doubt. You can't do this. You don't belong up there. And he sings in his head every Sunday as he approaches the pulpit to preach the word of God. He sings in his mind and in his head, spirit of the living God, spirit of the living God, fall fresh on me. But I ask you this question this morning, because I think it's a relevant question for all of us. What happens when you don't feel like singing? What if you sit there this morning and you go, the melody of my heart seems quiet. 
Because there are very real times in our lives when we don't feel like singing. There are very real times in our lives where our heart seems quiet. And that might be the season that you're going through right now. It doesn't seem like my heart is making melody to the Lord. What do we do when we can't sing anymore? Well, we find the answer in Zephaniah, of all places. Zephaniah in the Old Testament gives us the answer when my heart is quiet. See, in Zephaniah chapter 3, verse 17, it says this, The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. If you're not familiar with the book of Zephaniah, it's a real downer. The whole book is full of condemnation and gloom. It's like a dark cloud over the people of God, of, of impending judgment and condemnation. And so when we see the mighty warrior show up, when we see the mighty hero in chapter 3, verse 17 show up, we are expecting the wrath of God to rain down. But instead it says the mighty warrior sings. It says that the mighty warrior quiets you with his love. It says that the mighty warrior rejoices over you. How? How in the world can the mighty warrior's justice and condemnation be satisfied? There's only one answer. The mighty warrior, his justice and condemnation was satisfied through Jesus Christ. So that for those that are find themselves in Jesus, those hidden in Jesus, those rescued by Jesus, that the mighty warrior can put down his sword and instead of going into battle, he can look at his prized possession, you, for those that are found in Christ this morning, and instead he can sing over you. He can rejoice over you, his prized possession. So for those that don't feel like singing... We can look up and know that we have a mighty warrior who sings over us. For the truth of the gospel is that we love God because God first loved us. And that we can sing this morning because God first sang over us, his bride, his prized possession. And who is a Christian author, tells her story of conversion And her story of conversion started in the streets of Los Angeles. She found herself homeless. And Anne never felt beautiful enough or worthy enough to darken the doors of a church. So after a long, hard night, and she was on her way to get a cup of coffee, and she passed by a church, and not willing to darken the doors of the church because of her feeling unworthy, to enter the church and not feeling beautiful enough to go into the church. She just stood outside in the streets and she said outside in the streets, she could hear the people of God singing and she stopped to listen to them sing. And she says, it was like they were making me clean by singing these songs to God. And the next week, she passed by the same church, this little church of 40 people, and the doors were open again. And instead of sitting in, standing in the streets, she decided to stand in the entryway. 
And she said, as the people of God sang, I felt cleansed. And the following week, she drew up enough courage to not only stand in the streets and stand in the entryway, but she decided to stand against the back wall just to hear the people of God sing. And then one Sunday, she decided to go in and not just stand on the back wall, but decided to sit in the last pew. And she said, this is what happened to me. Dark and lonely and worn out, worthless and not feeling beautiful. She says, something inside of me that was stiff and rotting would feel soft and tender suddenly. Somehow the singing wore down all the boundaries and distinctions that kept me so isolated. Sitting there, standing with them to sing, sometimes so shaky and so sick, I felt like I might tip over. I felt suddenly bigger than myself, like I was being taken care of, tricked into coming back to life. And then one Sunday it happened. It was as if the people were singing in between the notes, weeping and joyful at the same time. I felt like their voices or something was rocking me, holding me like a scared kid. And I opened up to that feeling and it washed over me. I began to cry and left before the benediction and I raced home. I opened the door to my house. I stood there for a minute and I hung my head and said, okay, I quit. I give up. I took a long, deep breath and said aloud, all right, Jesus, you can come in. It was the moment that Jesus was making me beautiful. This was the moment of my conversion. As I said last week and the week before that, we have no idea the power of what happens here on a Sunday morning the power of the word being preached, the power of the people of God singing, the transforming power of the people of God gathered on Sunday morning to worship God with one voice as one people, has the power to transform you and me from the inside out. The songbook of the people of God allowing their words to sing together, to make a one beautiful song that cleanses us and washes us, to envision the mighty warrior singing over us, exalting over us, rejoicing over us this morning. There is only one cure for the heart that cannot make melody to the Lord, and that is being reminded that there is a mighty warrior, God himself, that through the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ makes our hearts come alive to make a melody once again to him.